Well, welcome. It is a Wednesday evening, uh, the 27th of October, so we can note this date that Pleasant View Missionary Baptist doors were open on this Wednesday evening, and this is very odd to me because it is, I can't see outside the windows. It is dark, okay? So fall is here, and it gets dark really early, and so but we're glad you're here, and um, that last song couldn't have been even more appropriate, Standing on the Promises, uh, especially the topic of discussion that we're going to be into the next few months, heaven and what God has promised us. God is good, amen? He is good, and, and as we're going to discover in this discussion, this series on heaven, how wonderful God is and the wonderful things God has in store for us after this life. This is a continuation for those who might, who will catch up later on, I uh, did my Superman act. I did not do my super, Superman act. I did not change for my Sunday apparel. Go in the uh, telephone booth and come out real quick. This is a different. This is the second part to Sunday morning. We're splitting it up so because there's so much material. I don't want to cram it in and make your head spin off before you leave here on Sunday morning. So we're splitting it up, and this is the second part to what we talked about Sunday morning. Why should Heaven matter to me today. Um, a recap of, of Sunday morning, we got into discussion of why heaven is important to us. Why should we make that a thing, a thing to think about in our everyday Christian life? Why should we talk about heaven? One reason is, like I mentioned Sunday morning, our departure from heaven is relatively soon, isn't it? It is soon. And it is definitely for certain. No question about that. The Bible talks a lot about the inevitable journey to that new destination called heaven. And the statistics, George Renard Shaw said Sunday, he said the statistics on death have never changed. One out of every one dies. We are going to die. But the question is, a lot of people wonder what happens after we die. Um... Death comes suddenly without warning. Unfortunately, many people, that's, that does happen. Um, we have to realize our life is short, and it should motivate us to think about heaven. You know, 70, 80, 90 years to us is a long time, but really, it's really nothing at all to God. It's, it's nothing whatsoever. Um, Johnny Erickson Tata, I mentioned Sunday, in 1967, as that teenager, she had that diving accident, and it caused her to be a quadriplegic, and boy, she's going strong for the gospel, evangelizing wherever she can. Being in a wheelchair did not keep her from doing what God wanted her to do. She wrote in one of her books, she said, heaven may be as near as next year or next week, she said. So it makes good sense to spend some time here on earth thinking, she said, candid thoughts about that marvelous future reserved for us. Now, I don't have to look over here. Now, I can just direct my attention to right here. Okay. You know, because we'll, as we go on in this study on heaven, we're, as we, we're going to discover the choices we make in this life drastically will impact the life we have thereafter. Amen? It will. You know, C.S. Lewis commented a whole lot about heaven, and I'm not going to read it to you, all of it, I think at the end of this message, I may have what he said once again. But the more we think about the next life, the more effective we can become in this life right now. You know, the blessings of heaven, we don't have to wait until then. After we die, we can experience them now. But if we'll reach out for them, you know, 
um, the uh, in Hebrews eleven thirteen. I'm just going through a review in case anybody has forgot. You know about what we discussed Sunday morning. Hebrews eleven thirteen. He said all all of these the uh, the the uh, uh, the roll call of faith. The saints of the Old Testament. He said all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They died without those blessings, but they didn't keep them from looking forward what was yet to come, what God had in store for them. And, of course, I talked about the Apostle Paul, how he was hard-pressed. He was ready to go. He had seen the third heaven, and God told him, don't utter a word of what you've seen. He was hard-pressed. He was ready to go, but yet he knew it would benefit the people if he would stay behind to fulfill the obligations, not obligations, the responsibilities God had given him. He was torn. He was hard-pressed because he seen what lied ahead. And then we went on to talk about uh, the first half, the uh, four benefits of being heavenly-minded. I mentioned, number one, that uh, being heavenly-minded or focusing on our future home called heaven reminds us of life's brevity. It reminds us how brief this life really is. You know, Peter said in 1 Peter 1.24, he said, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of, of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off. It's brief, folks. And then also, number two, focusing on heaven reminds us also, it prepares us for the certainty of judgment that is to come, ladies and gentlemen. And Jesus told us that famous passage in Matthew 7, 13 and 14 about the two destinations, not one destination, two destinations, for one for believers and one for unbelievers. And of course, unbelievers, many will find it. Believers, few will find it. And at the, um, we discussed that, and Jesus said, there's a way leading to eternal death, and that road leading to hell. And also that there is a way leading to eternal life in that passage. And then he talked about the two gates in Matthew 7, 13 and 14 that lead to both eternal life and eternal death. And we just determined those gates are uh, signs of judgment as well. And now we're going to get into the last two points of this message of the four benefits of being heavenly minded. Number three. This is new here. Number three, it motivates us to live pure lives, okay? How many of you have ever had to dress for a special occasion? We've all had to dress for a special occasion in our lives, but that occasion didn't come until late that afternoon, but you were going to be so busy, you had to dress for that occasion maybe earlier in the day because you wouldn't have time to change later to prepare for it. So you had to make sure you didn't get dirty, right? All right, anybody had to be in that situation? You know, trying to keep those clothes looking good and clean may have been quite a chore. And that's a great illustration for us Christians as well, trying to keep our spiritual clothes as clean as possible, you know, for that great event, the event of God's judgment of our lives. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3.13, he said, Each man's works will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, he said. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. The Bible many times uses the metaphor clothing to represent our spiritual lives, okay? And in Bible times, there were two different types of clothing. They didn't call it clothing then. They called them tunics, all right? 
okay? They, we have first the inner tunic. That is the undergarments. They're not visible. We have our inner tunics that are not visible. They better be not visible, okay? All right, and then number two, the outer tunic. That is visible for everyone to see. Gary's tunic, my tunic, and everyone else's tunic. You can see it, okay? The Bible says we are, as Christians, we wear two tunics. And that inner tunic, listen to this, represents our judicial righteousness okay there are different types of righteousness this is judicial righteousness what is that it's just being in right standing with god your judicial righteousness we receive that inner tunic the moment we trust in christ as savior when he hits that gavel in heaven down on that on that heavenly uh um, desk and he says you're not guilty you receive that judicial righteousness at that moment the god clothes ourselves in his righteousness then when he looks at us he sees the righteousness he doesn't see our righteousness because we don't have any whose righteousness does he see the lord jesus christ he sees christ's righteousness wrapped around wrapped around us our sins have been forgiven and they have been covered now we don't earn it it's received as a gift uh, paul said in philippians 3 9 and may and may uh, be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul said his, his clothes, they weren't good enough to get into heaven, okay? It is, he said he was full of holes, it was moldy, and it's stinky. He probably didn't get to bathe that often. You know, he was so busy doing his, his earthly job and then his ministerial work. He and Paul probably thought, there's no way God is going to let me in based on my works whatsoever. He says, I want to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Now, when we receive the inner garment, we are declared not guilty before God because we have been forgiven. That's the inner garment. But no one wants to run around in their inner garments, do they? I don't want to see anybody else in their inner garment. Well, maybe my wife, but anyway, you know. But anyway, no one else, we don't, we don't run around in our inner garments. You talk about a funny parade, it'd be, you know, trick or treat, Halloween's right around the corner. We don't want to do that. You, we want something else in our life as well. That's our outer tunic. The garment, this garment, the outer tunic represents our ethical righteousness. Okay, ethical righteousness. Now, what is ethical righteousness? It means our right acting before God. It's how we act after we have been saved. The Bible says before we are reunited with Christ, we better make sure we're not walking around in just our, our um, undergarments. We need to have that finest outer garment on possible. That is the best behavior and obedience to God. All right. The Bible says when Christ returns, we're going to join him in that great celebration known as, I talked about it before, the marriage supper of the Lamb. What a feast that's going to be. Okay. That's why it's so important that we're clothed in our best outer garments. Revelation 19.8, John says, It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. You know, think about attending a, anybody ever been to a fancy dinner or some kind of wedding celebration? You know, they're usually pretty fancy, aren't they? Most couples try to make their uh, reception, you know, pretty fancy for the most part. You know, and they dress their best. Ladies don't go around in a halter top, and, and men don't go, out, go around on 
and cutoffs and shorts, do they? They better not. I mean, that's not suitable for that kind of celebration. You know, hopefully you'd be in your finest clothing when you attend that formal celebration, wouldn't you? It's the same way when, we're, when you, we are re reunited with Christ. We want to be wearing the good works, that obedient life, don't we? That's what we want. And by the way, we, when we put on these outer garments, we want to keep them as clean as possible, don't we? We don't want our lives stained with sin, and we definitely don't want it stained in disobedience. Let's face it, though, it's hard to keep our outer garments clean at times, isn't it? I'll be darned. It's hard to keep, keep them clean because of this polluted world that we live in, unfortunately. The Bible teaches, teaches is one, that one of the best motivations for keeping our lives clean before God is focusing on heaven and that future reunion that we're going to have with the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter put it like this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. He said, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed, he said, with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all of these things are to be destroyed in this way, I love this part, what sort of people ought you to be? What sort of people ought you to be, ought I to be, in holy conduct and godliness? Great question. Realizing everything we see is wrapping up to a conclusion. You may not think it. Everything we see each day that we get closer and closer to our, the day of our death, everything is wrapping up, isn't it? And we realize in Christ is coming back again. You know, what, be what better motivation is that to live holy conduct and godliness? Focusing on, he on heaven is a great motivation to live pure lives. And then number four, lastly, focusing on heaven it places suffering in perspective, okay? You know, one major question that's always asked is, why did God allow, and then fill in the blank, why did God allow this sudden death to a loved one? Why did God allow me to lose my job at a time whenever we were on the pinch financially? Why, why, and why? And many times, why, is it, why did God allow a national tragedy like 9-11, we just remembered last month the 20-year anniversary of that horrific day on September 11. Why does God allow this if God is sovereign? Everybody, people have asked that question before. Many times when people ask why God allows these things or evil in the world, they're really asking this. They're really asking, why does God allow suffering in my life? That's what they're really asking. You know, Why did God allow me to be fired from my job? Or why did he allow me to go through that broken relationship? Or a lot, why did he allow me to go through a loss of a loved one that unexpectedly? Why does God allow suffering for those who are his people? You know, that's a legitimate question. Why does God allow those things? But interestingly, the Bible never, get, never answers the why question about suffering. It really doesn't give us the definitive, here's why, and then there you go. It doesn't do that. But it de the Bible does help us put suffering in perspective, though. Okay, follow me. Just for a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. You know, Paul, we all know who read and study the Bible, he had his share of suffering. Look at what he said, though. He said, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, 
For the things which are seen, he said, are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I want you to notice in those, in those, in those two verses, the two words here Paul used to describe the suffering in his own life. And I've talked about this before. He said first, he said the suffering was, his suffering was momentary. I, he probably at, at first probably thought, man this, is, man, this is quick, you know. No, he probably didn't think it as he was going through it. But as the years went by, getting closer to his death, realizing what was lying ahead, what was promised to him, he thought, you know what, that was momentary, the things that I went through. It was so momentary. For years, he suffered terrible things. He described it, you know. Circle the word, if you, if, you, if you have your Bible, if you write on it, circle that word momentary and draw a line from momentary to the word eternal, okay? He said his suffering was momentary compared to the eternity of blessings God has in store for him, okay? And the same is true for us as well. Our suffering, we, we may be experiencing now God understands, and eventually God will see us through it. It is very real, the things we go through. But also, like Paul, it's going to be very momentary. Remember this, whatever you're going through now, it definitely is momentary compared to etern the eternity and the blessings God has in store for you and for me and for the listening audience out there as well. We just really can't compre fully comprehend what eternity can be, do we? You hear the word eternity? There's no way in our finite minds we can really understand what that word eternity really means. We just can't gra grasp the idea, get our heads around it. Um, there was an illustration of a little bird, okay, about eternity. The bird, the, the story says the bird came every one million years. I don't see how one bird lived a million years, but he did. This bird came every one million years to sharpen its beak at the top of Mount Everest, okay? By the time that little bird had come back one millionth year after one millionth year, by the time that little bird had worn down Mount Everest down to the ground, only a second of eternity will have went by. Shoo! That would be one very old bird. <laughs> he wouldn't be worth cooking or eating, let me tell you. He'd be pretty old. Now, what are, what are we going, uh, what you are going through right now in your life, it is very real and God is aware of it. But the suffering is only momentary when compared to eternity. And also notice Paul also said this word to describe his own affliction. He described his suffering, he said, number two, he said as light. It was light. All right. Paul, I'm thinking, you know, Paul, you read that. How in the world can you say that, you know? Have you just uh, developed some kind of spiritual amnesia? Do you remember all the horrific things, Paul, that you went through? Think about it. He was shipwrecked, left for dead. He was, he was uh, beaten half, almost half to death. He was stoned, beaten five times within an inch of his life. You name it, the apostle Paul, he went through it. And you're thinking, Paul, you're, really? You're going to say that was light? How could you say that your suffering was light, Paul? Begin as compared to what? That's a question. If it's light, as compared to what, all right? Now, you can circle that word light in that scripture and draw a line and circle the phrase eternal weight of glory, all right? He said his suffering is very real, but it was relatively light. But light compared to what God has waiting for me. Waiting is the weight of his future 
blessing, all right? Now, I'm going to give you a quick illustration of weight. Weight is a matter of perspective, okay? I'm, we're not going to talk about anybody's individual weight here. We're, we're going to skip that. We're going to do something a little different. He said, if I asked Gary, uh, if I showed you a 2,000 block of concrete and I asked you the question, do you think that is light or heavy? More than likely, you'd probably, you probably would say heavy, but then you may even ask, well, compared to what? You take that 2,000 block of concrete compared to a feather, it's very heavy, isn't it? But you take that 2,000 block of concrete and you compare it to the One World Trade Center, it's very light, isn't it? It's a matter of perspective. Weight is a matter of perspective. And again, it's the same with the suffering we're, we are experiencing right now. You know, whatever you're facing right now, it's very real. It may even seem very heavy to you. But Paul, what he is saying, he says, compared to the blessings God has in store for each and every one of us, our circumstances, ladies and gentlemen, are very, very light. One person said it this way, quote, he said, when compared to the glories of heaven, the worst suffering of this world will one day, he said, seem to be nothing more than a one night stay at an inconvenient motel. <laughs> Anybody ever been in an inconvenient motel? Very aggravating, but that's what he said. That's exactly what Paul is saying to, to us here. Focusing on heaven, it doesn't eliminate the suffering, but it does put that suffering into a matter of perspective, okay? And all, although God's promises of heaven is still yet future, we have a great future awaiting us. It really should impact the way that we live every day. And I want to briefly go through, we have the time this evening, um, an, a Christian apologetics blog that I found, and I want to share it with you. He said, why should we focus on heaven? This was done almost seven years ago um, to the date. It was written by Bill Pratt. Listen to what he says here in closing. He says, perhaps you, you've heard the saying, Christians are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. The idea behind this statement is supposed to be that Christians are content to leave the world the way it is because we are simply biding our time here so that we can get to our final destination heaven he says it's only those people who don't believe in heaven that will do the hard work to improve the earth because earth is all there is to them while this is a, a catchy cliche he says it misses an important point christians do try to make the earth a better place every single day and they do it because heaven represents what earth is supposed to be like Heaven, the Christian's final destination, is a perfected and transformed earth. Heaven is what earth was supposed to be before sin entered the world and corrupted it. He went on to say, it is only by focusing on what is supposed to be that we will change what is. And, he, and then he goes on to quote C.S. Lewis, says this eloquently in his book, Mere Christianity. I'm going to read it again. C.S. Lewis said, he quotes him, if you read history, you will find that Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set foot on the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelists, excuse me, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth 
precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. He goes on to say, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Then he says, aim in heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. If you aim at earth, you'll get neither. Randy Alcorn summarizes the point in this article. He says, we need a generation of heavenly-minded people who see human beings and the earth itself not simply as they are, but as God intends them to be. So, rather than chide Christians for focusing on heaven too much, the non-Christian should hope that Christians do just the opposite. The Christian vision, he said in closing, the Christian vision of heaven is what derives us to improve the earth we currently call home. For what we do in this life, someone once said, echoes the halls of our future home called heaven. Amen. We have a great promise of heaven. And next week, we're going to continue talking more in about heaven, get deeper into it. Let's bow together in prayer. We just covered the general question, the most fundamental question, why should we be heavenly minded? Why should we focus on our future home called heaven? It's a place that Jesus said is very real, as we're going to discuss in the weeks ahead. It's a very real place. Jesus is going and has gone to prepare that place for us as Christians. If you're not a follower of Christ, you don't have that place, a future home of heaven. Your home will be separated from God for eternity, forever and ever in eternal hell. You don't have to have that place as your final destination. You can make a decision right now whenever you listen to this message, wherever you are. If, if God's Spirit is working on you, and you know you need a Savior. You're at the end of your rope. No one, has been able, no one can help you. No one else can save you. You can't even save yourself. You can't even forgive yourself of your sins. Only the blood of Jesus covers our sins. Won't you take that opportunity right now? As the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. If God's Spirit is working on you, and I'm telling you, it worked on each and every one of us when we were called to be one of His children. If God's Spirit is working on you, you can stop what you're doing right now. You can say this simple prayer with me, silent in your heart. If you really mean business with God and God's Spirit is working with you, you can say this, say this with me in confidence, knowing God is listening and God is just to forgive you. If you really mean business, you can say this prayer with me right now. Dear God, thank you for loving me. And I'm truly sorry for the sins in my life. But I do believe what I heard today that you love me so much, you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for my sins, taking the punishment that I deserved for those sins I've committed. And I'm trusting in what Christ did to save me of my sins, not by my good works, but by what Christ did on that cross to save me of my sins. God, thank you for loving me. God, thank you for forgiving me. And I'm asking you right now to help me spend the rest of my life serving you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And if you prayed that prayer and you really meant it with all your heart, you are now a child of God. You have a heaven to look forward to one day as we've been discussing in the first part, Sunday morning and in this evening. There is a future home 
called heaven that Christ is currently preparing for us in eternal places. We'll learn in the weeks ahead. You're going to want to give a testimony if you've committed your life to Christ and received that free gift of salvation. Tell others about what Jesus just did for you. It'll be, it's the greatest experience you'll ever, ever have in your entire life. It is for me. I'll never forget the day I was saved. I couldn't wait to tell anyone and everyone what Christ did for me. When I was, I bagged groceries at a grocery store. I carried out groceries. Remember those days when you had your groceries carried out for you? I did that, and I told everybody who would listen what Christ did for me, whether they wanted to hear it or not. We need that same kind of enthusiasm for Christ today. And you'll have that. Tell people what Christ did for you. And then also, you're going to want to get into a Bible-believing church, just like this church, Pleasant View Missionary Baptist. All our information is on our Facebook page, on our website, pvbaptistchurch.org. Great sermons, great information about our stance and where what we believe in the Christian faith. If you can't get to this church, get into a local Bible-believing church where they teach the whole counsel of God's Word. We do that here. We don't sugarcoat things to make us feel good, to get people's ears um, relieved from, from being itchy and tickly. We teach about sin and what sin does because we were all sinners. We're still sinners, but the difference is we're saved by God's grace. We're, we're still fighting the, that battle each and every day. Get into a Bible-believing church that teaches the whole counsel of God's Word. Father God, I pray in heaven, Father in heaven, I just ask you right now, Lord, that anyone who will listen to this message or another message they may hear online, wherever it might be, or in another church this evening on a Wednesday evening, that they would not resist that call if your spirit is working on them, that they would not resist the call of salvation. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.